Secure Financial Advisors, a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full informed investment decision. This is your money, your wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMV. Now, here's Joe Anderson and Big Al Clopine. Hey, welcome back to the program. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. My name's Joey Anderson. I'm a certified financial planner with Bobby Gabari today. He's a certified financial planner as well. Uh, we work for a company called Pure Financial Advisors. We're a fee-only registered investment advisor. Uh, every advisor that works at our firm is certified, a CFP, board certified financial professional. Uh, they're a salaried only employee of the firm. Uh, there's never commission generated to our firm. Um, and we act as a fiduciary 100% of the time. I know the buzzword of fiduciary is out there, and uh, there's a lot of talk with the new DOL rule. Um, we've talked a little bit about it. We're pretty happy about it. Um, but uh, just what you want to do is just make sure, in my opinion, that you work with a fee only, uh, not fee-based. There's fee-based out there. Um, well, I suppose I don't care who you work with as long as you get the competent advice that you want. Um, but if you want more transparency, you ask, you know, are you fee-only or fee-based? Fee-based, they can still sell your product via commission, uh, but maybe some of those products that you want and you don't care if that advisor or broker accepts a commission as long as it's transparent. Our firm decided against that. We are a fee-only registered investment advisor. We just get paid for service. Uh, we specialize in helping people create retirement income to last their lifetime without a lot of hassle, taxes, fees, costs. You know, things like that. So if you're interested, go to our website at purefinancial.com to learn a little bit more about us. Hey, I'm reading some questions here, some email questions. Um, so let's see. Here's one. We talked about Social Security earlier in the show, Bobby. If I received early Social Security benefits at age 62, what are the tax consequences if I'm still working? Well, if you're still working, it gets added to your taxable income. So it depends on how much money that you make, though. All right, so here's the caveat. When it comes to Social Security benefits, if you take it early and you are still employed, is that if you make more than, I'm, I'm gonna round 15,000 bucks, okay? If you make more than 15 grand, any dollar you earn over that, that threshold, every $2 earned after that, they're going to take a buck back from you. That's not a tax. They just take it away. They don't want you to double dip in a sense. So it's like 14860 or something like that, I'm guessing. So I'll call it 15000 to be safe. So if you make more than $15,000, and if you are taking your benefit at age 62, all right, just know that any dollar over that limit, every $2, and they're going to take a buck back. But let's say if you're making $10,000 and you're claiming your Social Security benefits, right? Okay, well, that $10,000 is going to be under the threshold, most likely, because you got... Um, depending on if you're saving any money in a 401k, maybe you're putting a couple thousand dollars in there. If you're making 10 grand, maybe not. Um, so then they look at your provisional income um, to determine what the tax consequence is going to be on your Social Security benefits. So in most cases, if you're still working, if um, it depends on, it doesn't say if you're single um, or married, uh, but if it's $32,000 um, to $44,000, well, then they would tax it. But if you're making thirty-two dollars to $44,000, um, or 85% of the benefit is going to be subject to tax. But if you're taking it at 62 and you're making, let's say, over $44,000, that Social Security benefit is probably going to re be reduced to a few thousand bucks. 
and then you're gonna and that few thousand dollars is gonna be taxed at eighty five percent. So just know every two dollars that you earn over that fifteen thousand dollar cap, one dollar, um, every two dollars you earn one dollar, they're gonna take back in Social Security benefits. So it depends on how much money that you're making, right, and um, what um, your provisional income is. So that is the answer there. So I'm thinking they're guessing what are the tax if I'm um, if they didn't know that they're going to reduce their benefit. Um, so it's a lot worse than tax. They'll just reduce it. It just seems like you didn't claim it is basically what the Social Security Administration does. So you still receive, let's say, I, I took my benefit at 62 and I make 100000 bucks. Well, that's going to wipe everything out. And so it's going to assume the Social Security Administration, even though I claim for my benefit, that I didn't receive anything. So I'd get the increase. So, so next it's year, not lost. It's not lost. Gotcha. So next year, when I turn 63 and I'm not working at all, then Social Security assumes that I just started at 63. Okay, that makes sense. That right? makes more sense, yeah. So if I take it at 62, you get a 25% permanent haircut. If I take it at 63, I get like a 22-point-something permanent haircut. So, um, All right, so here's another one I think we got time for. After separating from prior employers in the first quarter of 2015, we are able to deduct any funding contributions to traditional IRA plans for that tax year. So here's the question. My wife and I separated from our prior employers in the first quarter of 2015. We are covered under the prior employer's retirement plans. We are not covered under our current employer plans. Since we left the prior companies during the tax year, are we able to deduct any funding contributions to traditional IRAs for the 2015 tax year? This is a very interesting question. Um, and I have a couple of thoughts here. Is that, here's the rule, is that if you have an employer plan, okay, you can still contribute to an IRA. Right? So if you're fully funding your 401k plan, you can contribute to an IRA. But deductibility limits are based on income. So if you're covered by a plan, you have to make under $98,000 um, or $61,000 if you're single. These people are married. So if you're under $98,000 on a joint return and you had an employer plan that you participated in in that year, you can still make the deduction. Is you that, can still make the deduction. Is that taxable income or adjusted gross income? AGI, MAGI, or it's the bottom of the 1040, right? So that's $98,000, and it goes to 118, so it's a phase-out, 98 to 118, and 61 to 71 if you're single. So if you have an employer plan that you contributed to in that calendar year, you can still contribute to an IRA, all right? So I think they're thinking, hey, well, I had a plan, now I don't have a plan, but you had a plan in the calendar year. Because if you think of it like this, I could have fully funded that 401k plan in the first quarter of sure. 24,000 bucks, let's say. right? And then, oh, I don't have another plan, and I make a um, $200,000. Because if I don't have an employer plan, then there's no income limit. But you had an employer plan in that given year, so now uh, you would fall under the uh, Maji, 98 to 118, 61 to 71. So a lot of different rules when it comes to retirement accounts. And, you know, it's, they're trying to make it real easy for us to save for retirement and make it, um, you know, painless. Not uh, not very true. So <laughs> at all. <laughs> all right. We got to take a break. Don't go anywhere. Coming right back. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Now back to Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Hey, welcome back 
to the program. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Uh, my name's Joe Anderson. I'm a certified financial planner with Big Al. Oh, I'm not with Big Al Clopine. I'll take that. It's just a habit. <laughs> Ten-year habit. Bobby Gavari is filling in for Big Al. Um, he's in Africa still checking out the hippos. The hippos and the lions. Lions and bears. Oh, my. Hey, um, <clears throat> so Advisor Insights. I'm not sure if you've heard of this, Bobby. Um, Investopedia, they email me a bunch of questions that they want me to answer. Um, so what I do, instead of typing this stuff out, I just bring it to the airwaves because okay. I'm sure other people might have similar questions. So I have a few emails here that we're going to tackle, and we'll uh, test Bobby Gavari's knowledge. Oh, boy. You are a certified financial planner. I am. All right. So here's one question for you. Um, can I pass on the stock certificates to my son in my will? So uh, it goes on to say, I was told I could get stock certificates from the company that I retired from. Will my son get the stock price and dividends from the time I receive them until he cashes them in at a broker? All right. So this is a two-part question here. First of all, Let's talk about stock certificates. I don't know why anyone would hold stock certificates today. Yeah, that, that's a thing of sort of the past. Right. And I, I think a lot of companies today won't even issue the certificates. It's getting more and more rare. You know, so you just, it's they're held at a brokerage firm. Sure. And you look at the number of shares that you own and then dividends would just get reinvested or you could take them. Uh, versus having the actual stock certificates, um, like my grandmother right, had right. stock certificates. Sitting in a safe in your house, tucked they, away they were, somewhere. Yes, right. And then the dividends would get you know deposited in a checking account or something like that. So first of all, um, yes, the stock certificates could get passed to your son in a will. So you name the will, all right? So you have a will, and you say, I want my son to get XYZ stock certificates, and the total value is this. But... However, um, those stock certificates will go through the probate process. You need a trust. Yeah. Well, I mean, the transfer title at death of a non, you know, there's no TOD transfer of death or beneficiary form that will have to go through the probate process. And then that would then the title would get changed. The judge would read the will and say, okay, junior, you get the stock certificates, but you have to go through that process. And that probate process is what? Pretty lengthy and, and, and time consuming and yeah, expensive? Yeah, here in California, it's very, um, but you know, a lot of people listen to this on podcasts. So depending on what state that you live in, I mean, there could be faster. Here in California, where we broadcast from, oh, it's, it's pretty lengthy. In Southern California, San Diego, um, there's only a few probate courthouses, in a sense, where it, it, the, the, the time could be very, very lengthy. There's probate costs um, to attorneys to put people through it. Um, it's you know public record. So there's things that you might want to avoid. It's just not an efficient way to pass it on. So I would then say title the stock certificates in the name of a trust if you have one, or establish a trust to avoid the probate process. All right? Um, or deposit the stock certificates in a brokerage account and then put the brokerage account in the name of the trust. That's probably the way you'd like to go. And so how it works, then when you pass away, yes, whatever price of the stock, when you pass away, it just then gets transferred to the, the beneficiary. Right? But there's a step up in basis at that point. So let's say you bought XYZ stock for $1 a share, and now it's worth $10 a share. 
right? Mm-hmm. And then you're like, okay, well, here, I'm passing. Uh, when I pass away, I want it to go to my child. When you pass away, right, what happens is that there's a step up in cost basis on a non-qualified asset, on a capital asset. So what happens is that now, let's say, now the price of the stock is $10 a share. When the original owner bought it, it was $1 a share. That stock would get transferred to the beneficiary of the trust, or in this case of the will or whatever, right? But the basis gets stepped up now to $10 a share. So if the son decide to sell the, the, the shares of stock... Tax consequences? No, there wouldn't be any tax consequence, right? right? Because there would be a full step up in basis. Even if he held the stock certificate, it doesn't matter. It would it'd still be a, a full step up in basis. So, Or if he decide to keep that stock, yeah, he would continue to receive uh, the dividends, right? Um, and then the growth of Future the stock. Future appreciation Future of Future appreciation of the stock. So now let's say the original owner bought it for a dollar a share, went to $10 a share. He passed away. The son inherited it. He kept it. And then the stock price went from $10 a share to $15 a share. So when the original owner bought it, it was at a dollar a share, but now it's at $15 a share. And then the son tr- sells it. The capital gain would be from the $10 a share to $15 a share because he would get a full step up in basis at the date of death of the original owner. And then now the beneficial owner would get that step up. And and then when he decides or she decides to sell it, it would be the capital appreciation on that date of death. So then in that example, instead of $14 of capital gains, the, then the person who inherited would have $5 of you capital got gains. Got you got it. So... Um, yeah, to answer your question, uh, will my son get the stock price and dividends from the time I receive them until he cashes them in at a, at a broker? Yeah, they would still receive the stock, but they would get a step up in basis. They would still receive the full appreciation of the stock and the dividends um, at the time he inherits them. Um, and then if he cashes them out at the broker, uh, potentially there would be um, minimal tax depending on when he cashed them out at a broker. All right. So I think we did pretty well on that one. Next one. How do I deal with stocks that pay dividend on a monthly basis? How do you deal with it? If I own 1,000 shares of company ABC, which yields 50 cents per share, that would equal 500 bucks. So my question is this. When dealing with stocks that pay dividends on a monthly basis, could I expect to receive those $500 every month? Or would it be spread loaded across the entire year like quarterly stocks are? I don't know what spread loaded means. Yeah, I could have no, figured that a, out. But no, if it's a 50 cent dividend, annual dividend that gets paid out monthly, you would get one twelfth of the dividend per month. Spread throughout the year. We had Larry Swedgewan last week talking about dividends. Right? And I think still people get confused on dividends, that they think it's a coupon. That, that, that's actually a big, I mean, I hear that all the time, right? Oh, my company or my stock is paying dividends. Well, you have to also remember when the dividend is paid out, the price of the stock ex-dividend date reflects and is reduced by the amount of that dividend. So it's not a coupon payment. You're not getting paid interest. You're getting paid in, you know, a portion of the earnings from that company's stock. And then there's um, a little premium bump before the ex-dividend date. Yeah, we see that too. But Swedro is probably a better person to d- discuss the premium bump. Well, th- well, all that means is that people then kind of buy into the stock right before the dividend. Take, right. right. And then when you when a lot of people buy into a stock, what does that do to price? It increases the price. But then when the dividend is distributed out, the stock price is reduced, reduced by the amount of the dividend. 
because capital is leaving. You're just taking your capital. Right. You I, are an owner of the company. Right. You're not lending your money to the company. They're distributing the excess cash from the company, so the value or the market cap of the company is reduced by the amount that's been distributed. But dividends are paid on the number of shares. Correct. Right? So if the share price drops 50%, people say, well, I would still get my dividend. Maybe. If someone loses that much of the likelihood of them continuing to pay a dividend, um, that, that, they, don't I, have, they might not have the cash to do it, or they might have to sell stock to pay out the dividend, which would then reduce the overall capitalization of the firm. And a lot of people make that mistake to say, all right, I have a dividend-paying portfolio, so that's my income stream. Well, in 2008, when the market tanked, a good number of those companies stopped paying dividends or reduced those dividends. So, you know, to consider that a fixed income source, um, you know, you might want to think twice about it. Yeah, and I, there's there's all sorts of ways to create income. I, I believe dividend-paying stocks um, is a great way to do it as a portion a por of the overall portfolio. Correct. You right? don't want to be focused in only dividend-paying stocks. Let's just stocks. buy one stock that pays a big dividend. I mean, that's a pretty dangerous uh, proposition. Uh, but, you know, because people's hearts sink, you know, when the mar market drops, you know, because they weren't necessarily prepared, sure. right? Especially when you get into retirement, we you look at your money so much more than when you're accumulating. And so, I mean, let me ask you, do you have, I mean, I mean, do you fear the market could drop further or wipe out your entire life savings? I mean, I think a lot of people have that fear where they probably shouldn't have, I mean, wipe everything out. I guess if you're one individual stock, that could happen. But you know what really drives me nuts, too, is that you listen to these podcasts or, or financial planning shows, and everyone always refers back to 2008. Oh, you know, are you prepared for another 2008? Or are you prepared for another Great Depression? I mean, come on. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> don't, don't sell me with your fear. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's what the media tends to do. Right? Fear sells. You know, hey, your portfolio is going to drop 50%. Well, yeah, if I had 100% of my assets in stocks. But anyway, I got to take a break. When we get back, there's a lot more questions I want to make sure that we answer. Uh, but you might have other questions about your particular situation. I want you to get your answers answered or your questions answered. Um, we got a special guest, so don't go anywhere. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. This is Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Hey, welcome back to the show. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson here, certified financial planner. Got Bobby Gabari with me, filling in for Big Al today. Big Al is still in Africa hunting, um, or not hunting. Oh, be careful. He is w looking at animals, I guess, whatever. Uh, but we got Laura Adams on the phone. Uh, she's a personal finance expert. She's an author, speaker. She wrote a book called Money Girl, Smart Moves to Grow Rich, which is a phenomenal book. And I want to welcome Laura to the show. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be with you guys. You know what? I really like you because uh, you went to the University of Florida, and so did I. Yes, I got my MBA there. Yeah, we're, we're, we're fellow Gators. <laughs> so tell me about Money Girls Smart Moves to Grow Rich. First of all, what inspired you to become a writer in personal finance? And um, what inspired you to write the book? Yeah, it's funny because it was actually my time at the University of Florida when I was getting my MBA when I realized that I wanted to write about personal finance. There were so many really smart, educated people in my program, and a lot of them were having personal struggles with money. And I realized that you could be very smart and even very educated 
and still have a lot of financial challenges and difficulties. And so that's where I really started writing about finance. I started uh, first blogging and then got into podcasting and then got into writing a book. So that's where it really all stemmed. And I, I just did a lot of research and kind of dove headfirst into the topic of personal finance and talked to a lot of people and, and looked at my own life and my own experience and created a handbook. So it's really um, kind of a user-friendly guide for people to go through some of the most complex topics. I like to make complex things easy to understand. So that's what the book is all about. What are some of the things, um, I guess, what are the biggest pitfalls that you see that people are making in regards to personal finance? Yeah, certainly one of the biggest mistakes I see is people waiting to start investing. They really think, oh, I'm going to start when I get that promotion at work or when my finances are finally in order, when my budget's finally in order, then I'll start investing. And you really lose a lot of momentum in years or decades where you're not investing. So a lot of people have challenges sort of figuring out, well, if I've got extra money, what do I do with it? Should I invest it? Should I pay off debt? Should I use it for an emergency fund? And these are really complex questions. But for most people, I say if you've got some extra money, build up a little emergency fund first. Um, even $500, $1,000 is great. Then when you've got that financial cushion, then you're in a position to really begin thinking about the future. So thinking about putting some amount of money every single month into a retirement account, whether it's at work or an IRA on your own. And then also, of course, if you've got really expensive debt, like high interest credit card debt, you want to be paying that down as well. But I encourage people to do both. Put a little money toward debt and money toward investing at the same time so you don't lose momentum and you begin to build an emergency fund. You begin to build that retirement account as early in your career and in, in your life as possible. You know, that's a good point because I think sometimes people get too maybe focused on one thing versus the other, such as, hey, I have some debt here that I want to pay off. And so they solely focus on paying off the debt, but they don't build any other type of liquid assets. And then all of a sudden they pay off the debt and something happens and they don't have any cash reserves to pay for whatever emergency or opportunity. And guess what? They just fall back into that cycle and they go back into debt. Exactly. And so it, it is challenging to do sort of multiple things with our money at the same time, but that's that's what I challenge people to do. Get that emergency fund, then begin thinking about the future and paying off debt. We really have to have a lot of balls in the air with our finances. And that's when I, I see people succeed the most when they're able to kind of multitask with their finances and not get so focused on, okay, I've got to pay off all my debt, then I'll invest. And what happens is it takes too long to pay off that debt, and they never get started investing. So that's a huge mistake that I see people make. You know, and I'd say another big mistake I see is folks not having insurance. Insurance can be really cheap, and it's just another way to prepare for life's unexpected events, like losing your job or, you know, getting sick or, or even dying. So these are all really important things to think about as well. Um, life insurance, for instance, is super cheap, especially if you're relatively young and healthy. Uh, disability insurance can be inexpensive. That's something most people should be looking at. And, of course, everyone needs health insurance, and, and now that's the law. So these are basic insurance policies that everyone should have so that they can protect their assets and protect their income. Yeah, no, no question. I think... 
um, when you're younger, um, the, the biggest asset that you have is that ability to earn that income, um, to continue to save and grow wealth. And if you do get hurt or injured or something like that, that disability policy could potentially, you know, um, definitely save, save the financial house for sure. Yeah, I heard a statistic that we are more likely to become disabled before the age of 65 than we are to die before the age of 65. So that's pretty pretty amazing. And it is something that a lot of people don't like to think about, especially young people when you're, you're healthy and strong. You don't think about these things happening to you, but they can. And of course, health insurance only pays your medical bills. It doesn't pay your income if you need you know, everyday living expenses, but yet you can't work due to a disability or illness. So disability coverage, a lot of people can get that through work, but if you can't or you don't get enough through work, you can also get a private policy on your own. Same is true with life insurance. So these are all really uh, important tools that we have to not only protect our finances, but to keep our peace of mind, you know, uh, keep us happy about our financial life. Because if we're worried about the future, it's hard to really have a fulfilling life. And a lot of these policies, a lot of what they do is give us peace of mind so that we can feel at ease about our finances and, and really have a happier life. What advice would you give, um, you know, individuals now that are in their 60s um, that haven't done any savings or that, that are very light in regards to savings? Um, you know, I, what, what I find is that th there's this hopelessness at some point. It's just like, you know what, I, I don't have any money saved or I only have a small nest egg. I'm never going to be able to retire. I mean, what advice would you give some individual like that? Yeah, it's never too late to begin saving. And certainly when you're older and you're, you're just getting started, you've got to be more aggressive. There are some ways that you can, can get more aggressive, certainly using anything that's a, a tax advantage opportunity. But for, for most people, you're going to have to radically cut your, your spending. You know, think about your biggest expenses. And for most people, that's housing. So what can you do to downsize your housing? maybe moving into a smaller home or a smaller apartment and cutting that expense radically is one way to free up money so that you've got more to, to spend down the road. You know, you also can think about retiring abroad. There are a lot of countries where it's much less expensive to live and where you might be able to live on your Social Security income, uh, you know, much better than you could in the United States. So that's kind of like a last resort if you're an adventurous type and you wouldn't mind going overseas. Um, that's certainly uh, a way that a lot of people have found that they can live much more comfortably in retirement on very little income. We're talking to Laura Adams. Uh, Laura, we uh, just got a, a few seconds left here. Any final thoughts, um, any final words of wisdom that you can give our listeners? Yeah, you know, I think focusing on just small wins, what you can do every day to move yourself forward financially is a, is a great way to think about it and not get too overwhelmed. Pick up a book, you know, read Money Girl Smart Moves to Grow Rich, subscribe to a podcast. Uh, I do a podcast weekly called Money Girl. There are a lot of ways to learn about finances that are free, that are easy, and that will inspire you and motivate you to just make some small steps forward every day or every week. And, and really, that's how you gain momentum and build a financially successful life. Uh, you know, I think people are intimidated by money um, sometimes, and they don't know where to start or where to go. Um, so you do a great service. Get her book, Money Girl, Smart Moves to Grow Rich. And then uh, your podcast is Money Girl? 
Money Girl. Yeah, I've actually got a new one coming out as well called Richer Life Lab, uh, where we cover money, career, and life. So these are just free resources where it's easy to learn about money and, and get motivated and inspired. That's awesome. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, that was Laura Adams. Get her book, Money Girl, Smart Moves to Grow Rich, or check her out on her podcast, Money Girl. we got to take a break. show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Now back to Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Hey, welcome back to the program. Wrapping things up here on a Saturday. show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. My name's Joe Anderson. I'm a certified financial planner. I am with Babak Gavari. He's a certified financial planner as well. He's director of institutional advisory. <laughs> Why do you have to make that what, face when you say the title? What are you talking about? I'm very <laughs> proud of having the director of institutional advisory <laughs> on, on this program here on this beautiful Saturday morning, now afternoon. You know, I had a couple of things here, Babak, but I don't know where they went. So anyway, Prince died. Did you hear that? I did hear that. You've been uh, pretty devastated all week. I love Prince. I know you do. I went and saw him in concert at Las Vegas, Nevada. What year was that? <sighs> Let's see. About eight years ago? Eight years ago. Maybe. In Vegas. Mm-hmm. And um, I, my college roommate was from Minneapolis. Okay, We were best friends in high school. And then we moved to Florida. Right. Well, actually, he moved about six months before I did. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to move to Florida. And I said, you know what? I'm getting the hell out of Minnesota. <laughs> moved to Florida. So went to University of Florida, right? Okay. And so he was a diehard Prince fan. I was a diehard fan. Like in high school, that's all we'd listen to. Prince in his basement. Right? And sneak um, High Life, Miller High Life. <laughs> <laughs> Have a couple cans of Miller High Life and listen to Prince. That was our Friday night. Sounds like a good time. And um, yeah, so he was an ultra, ultra fan. I was a pretty good fan because he was like my neighbor, right? Mm-hmm. And um so I graduated, moved back to Minneapolis, and then found my way out to California. And then he stayed in Florida. Now he's a physician. Um, he went to uh, med school at University of Florida, and now he's a doc in Florida. And he's like, Joe, I got tickets, Prince. And he's like, I'm on this weird list um, that I got like almost front row tickets. And he goes, I got four tickets, but I got two for you and I that are sitting like three rows up. And then he had other two that were really good seats for our other two buddies, but they were kind of, not in the nosebleeds, but they weren't. <laughs> you got the first class ticket. I, my seat was right next to MC Hammer. Get out of here. No lie. MC Hammer <laughs> sitting right next to me, doing his new dance moves. It was phenomenal. Uh, oh, boy. Yeah. Stuart Scott was there. He sat next to us. It was uh, quite the event. Quite that the event. sounds like quite the event. So, um, yeah, he passed away. And uh, awesome musician. If anyone, I mean, who doesn't love Prince? Yeah, yeah, everybody does. So uh, he passed away without a will. So you need to have some sort of an estate plan if, first of all, you have any type of assets. Just to make sure that you, you, you tell people where you want your stuff to go. Right? Write it down. And get it notarized. The simple will, right? That will t- at least give the probate courts some direction. Some direction, right? The reading of the will, right? So then you can say, all right, well, this goes here, this goes there, whatever, right? Without anything, it's intestate. Then the, the state decides what happens, right? Um, and, and here's a th- th- thing, too, is what I find is that when people like go through the estate planning process, they're like, oh, man, I don't want to go through that process because as soon as I do, I might die. 
Oh. It's a scary thought. Because sure. you start thinking about yeah, things but, yeah. you don't want to think about. Right. Like, all right, if I die, what's going to happen to this? No, I don't want to. No, it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to share. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Well, this is the process. This is why we do this. Right? So here's a trust. Uh, um, what a trust does, and um, it avoids probate. A lot of times people think a trust will avoid um, taxes. Right. Right. It doesn't. It avoids the probate process. A trust is an entity. What you want to do is you want to get a living trust and then title your belongings in the name of the trust. Anything that is outside of a retirement account. Can I ask you about that real yeah. quick? Because mm -hmm. a lot of people um, will say, okay, beneficiaries listed on my retirement accounts is the trust. That would be a, a mistake in most cases. Okay. Only if you want to control the money from the grave is why we would recommend anyone to name the trust the beneficiary of their retirement account. Because what happens there, it, it could screw up the stretch IRA for one. Um, the trust has to be a look through or see through trust, which most trusts are, but I still seen um, some mistakes. Um, the All the beneficiaries have to be identifiable. So what that means is that um, they, they all have to be people, right? You can't have a charity, let's say. So maybe you have 5% gotcha. going to the church or maybe 5% going to the university or whatever, you know, just something to a charity that you care about. Um, well, because of that 5% going to the charity blows up the stretch provisions in that retirement account. What the stretch provisions means this. Let's say you have a million dollar retirement account and you pass away and you have your kid as the beneficiary. Let's say your kid's 20 years old, right? Well, they have, let's say, 85 years of life expectancy, so that's 65 more years of life. Right? So then the non-spouse beneficiary can stretch out the tax liability of that million-dollar IRA over 65 years. So over their own life expectancy. You got it. If it goes through a trust, right, and let's say you have a non-identifiable um, charitable organization or a non-identifiable person, such as a charitable organization, it will blow it up. It potentially would have to go out within five years. So right? kill you in taxes. It could. It could kill the beneficiary in taxes. Also, the, the trust document, there's a delivery requirement. It needs to be at the custodian. Um, so the most beneficiaries don't know that you have to give the trust to the custodian to make sure that it will follow. You know, the, So there's a lot more complex. Yeah, right. You can do it if you want to control it. right? So if you have a child that is like, you know what, if they get this million dollars, they'll blow it. Um, so I want to make sure that they only take a small component, only the, maybe the required distribution out of the account, um, or maybe a little bit more for education, health, or sure. whatever, right? Um, so you don't, in most cases, want to set up a trust. That's my opinion. You might want to set up a separate trust for the retirement account because then that, that could give you asset protection, right? So because IRAs, an, uh, an, an inherited IRA that goes to a non-spouse, that, that is not um, asset protection at all. Oh, that's interesting. Um, where retirement accounts are has some asset protection when you are sued, if you're the owner. If you're the beneficial owner, it doesn't. So that if you set away. up a trust, then to say, all right, well, if I have a large IRA that I want to make sure in the, in, in my son or daughter um, has a, a high-risk job that potentially could be sued or something like that. I mean, we're in a litigious society, right. so who knows? I mean, you can get sued for anything. So if you want to protect it with asset protection, a trust could do that. That might but make sense. I would set up a separate like IRA trust to then have the IRA go through that trust solely. Uh, the reason for that is because there's the required minimum distribution requirements on retirement accounts. 
if if I inherit a property, right, I don't have to take a distribution from the property. You know what I mean? Right. It's if different. I if I have a, a a brokerage account that I inherit, I don't have to take distributions. There's from no it. requirement. There to is take... no requirement in a retirement account that grows tax deferred. There is a requirement by law that you have to. Well, because the IRS wants their tax money. You got it because you got the pre-tax going in. It grows tax deferred going out, and so they want the taxes coming out, right? And then when you die. It's like, well, wait a minute. Now, this is made for retirement. It's not a wealth transfer thing. So so there's different planning opportunities, I guess. But with a simple trust, um, you want to name your property. You probably go ahead and put your bank accounts in there, any brokerage account, anything that does not have a beneficiary designation. Then what happens when you pass away, the successor trustee steps in. So you name, um, you know, if you're married, you're co-trustees with your spouse. And the successor trustee could be an organization. It could be a friend, a family member, whatever. Then they step in and basically distribute your assets to your beneficiaries that are named in your will inside the trust, right? So it's a cleaner process. You can avoid the courts. You can avoid the, the attorney fees. Um, it's private. It's not public record. Uh, so there's there's some advantages um, to having a good, solid estate plan. Financial powers of attorney are really important. Healthcare directives are important. Um, so you want to make sure that you have a well-designed estate plan given for what you want to, to do. What, I mean, if you say, you know what, I don't care if the kids go through probate. Well, then just get a will. Who cares, right? It's your situation. It's your life. You do what you want to do. Just understand, uh, understand the, the consequences right. of, of doing it or not doing That's it. That's the key to everything. Hey, thanks again uh, for listening. Uh, Bobby Gavari, great filling in for Big Al. Thank you very much. Thanks, Joe. Uh, for Bobby Gavari, I'm Joe Anderson. You just listened to another episode of Your Money, Your Wealth. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next week.